Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I am wearing them right now. That is why I sound so comfortable. I pay for them with my own money. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, so I smell great as well. You can wear them to work. You can wear them to play. You can wear them to podcast. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like them, keep them. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. Thank you, Mac Weldon. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, talking to you from the Vox Media Auxiliary Podcast Studio. I think it's actually a video studio, but it works for today. I'm here with Kenny Lehrer. Kenny, Kenneth, what's the best way to, to address you, Mr. Lehrer? Mr. Lehrer to you. Mr. Lehrer. Okay, Ken or Kenny. If you spend any time um, thinking or writing about media like I do, you're going to encounter Mr. Lehrer. I write about old media and new media and the way that those two things intersect. And you're kind of the definition of that, your career in terms of what you've done in the past, what you're doing now. I was going to just read through your entire Wikipedia, but it's a pretty short Wikipedia. It's missing some stuff. I don't believe in editing one's Wikipedia for for good or for bad. Among other things Mr. Lair has done in the past, he was a co-founder of Huffington Post. I was teasing about Mr. Lair, you know. Yeah, I know. Okay. He's currently chairman of BuzzFeed, a major investor there. You invested in a bunch of media properties, which you've now, and your kids ran, and you've now sold to Discovery. Uh, we didn't sell Sorry, to jo- it. a joint venture with Discovery. They invested. They invested. You're on the board of Viacom. I am. What else am I missing? Uh, you were an early AOL executive, both yeah. prior to and after the Time Warner merger. I, I wasn't actually an executive until a little bit before the merger. I was a consultant for a while. A consultant at MTV? At AOL. Yeah, and then you were consultant at MTV at one oh, point? Oh, when I was four. We're going way back. Yeah. Uh, you started what was one of the bigger, uh, more prominent PR firms, Robinson Lair Montgomery. Do I got the name right? You do. At one point, if you... If you this if, makes me very tired If you're very this. old, um, you'll know the name Michael Milken. You this used to do work for him. so sad. And now we're done. We've done the entire life story. Okay, thank you. The point of this was to give people who don't know you, and they should know you, just a sense of the scope of sort of what you've done, what you're seeing, and what why you're here, so... Thanks again for sitting through the bio. You're literally just yawning and, and, and falling asleep as we talk. That's okay. I want to talk about politics first? Perk you up? It's depressing. You are, you are a prominent Democrat, prominent uh, supporter of Democrats, prominent uh, Obama fan. Big, a big Obama fan. Just curious because we'll talk about media eventually. You, you supported Democrats for a long time. Have you ever thought about getting into politics yourself? No. I'm much too shy and don't have the patience and I'm probably not nice enough to shake hands with all those people. I think you're half right about the shy, right? I mean, your, your profession prior to sort of becoming a, a wise man of digital media was, was public relations. So you were on the phone, you were talking to people, but you're not sort of a glad-hander. No, I've always pretty much stuck to myself and my family and a few friends. And the company that we had, Robinson, Lear Montgomery, wasn't a typical public relations company. It was a corporate communications company where we spent most of our time keeping people out of the press or keeping people or companies out of the press, not seeking press. So, so or, or shaping the way the press talked about them, right, if they were going to be in the press anyway. Well, helping the story become more accurate. <laughs> you could see me. There's a big smile on my face. But, but So you're, you're not a showy guy. You don't want to be in politics. Um, no. Did you imagine when you were sort of starting off in PR that you were going to end up as sort of trying to find a way of putting this without, without making you immodest, that you'd have this sort of position where you've got 
the reason I'm having you here is you've got tremendous insight into the way old media works, new media works. You've got a lot of influence uh, via relationships with things like BuzzFeed. Did you see that path ahead of you or did you stumble uh, I, into this? No, I sort of stumbled into it. I didn't start my career at Robinson Lear Montgomery. Right. I was a journalist on day one. And you wised up? I went broke. <laughs> Sorry. Where were you? I don't know. No, no. Oh, by the way, among other things, you were an investor in, in uh, Business Insider. Yep. And I was an investor in Business Insider. There we are. So we both so, did well. So we both did well. So congratulations <laughs> to us. I started in politics and as a journalist. I went back and forth a few times. And I always was intrigued with media from either side or from any side. So in the corporate communications firm we did – I learned to understand how how stories were written and what went into them. Where, where, I, where did you start off in journalism? I wrote some uh, pieces for Village Voice as a freelancer, and then I actually had a contributing editor job at New York Magazine. And I wrote back when those were both things. <laughs> well, since New York Magazine, New York Magazine still, still is still around, I won't, yes. I won't, no, I won't, I won't agree with you. Do very good work, but um, Adam does great work. I think they've been doing great work. Actually, agreed. So Village Voice, and I wrote about politics, and then I was one of the writers who wrote a column called City Politic for New York Magazine for a couple of years. So you got to see how the machinery worked. You got to see yeah. the inside of the sausage making factory. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And then, and then, like I said, I was um, I had a contract to pay me eleven thousand dollars a year, and then I, I said this isn't going to work, and I went to the business side uh-huh. and worked on the business side of New York Magazine for a couple of years. So that was my journalism first-hand experience. And then, then you wised up. I don't want to go through your entire career. No, again, you'd, no. You'd I didn't mean out. to go through any of my career. I'm just saying I've been lucky enough to see media from different perspectives, which has helped me think about it. Sometimes when I talk to you or hear you talk, and there's a famous quote that's attributed to you, I get the sense that you don't have a, a terrible amount of respect for most journalists that you think no, that's are not No, first of all, good. that's a quote that is made up. Yeah, this is the one in Nina Monk's book about AOL. You can look it up yourself on the on Oh, the that I didn't see. She didn't write that. She picked it up actually from Jim Stewart's book. Okay. And see how you didn't even say it? Thank you, there and you I go. remember it. Yeah, you can Google it. It's horrible, and it's not true. And Jim and I have since become friends, and it was made up out of whole cloth. And for those people who know me, I, I don't talk like that. I don't think like that. The other thing that put in my head, I, I went and saw you do a, an interview with uh, Michael Litton, who's still at Sony, but now at, uh, chairman of Snapchat, friend right. of yours. And you were talking about the Sony hacking incident. Right. And at one point, you sort of were, were encouraging him to be – basically, you were saying the press, the press did a, was irresponsible about the way they handled uh, – no, I said, were they? Were they? I asked them the question. Uh, yeah. So wait, so I, I, have, I, have, to lead him down I have to correct you on two points sure. before we keep going. I think you slipped in that I don't have respect for journalists. I don't know if you said that or not. I got the sense sometimes, that yeah. and then I qualified it some more. Yeah, that's totally wrong from every perspective, and I can't even – I don't want to get in a fight with you in the first five minutes of yeah, sure. our interview. We'll but, but it's totally wrong, uh, and I, don't, I can't imagine why you would say that, so I take offense at that. Anything but. Um, and number two, what, well, I, I asked Michael what he thought. I yeah. didn't give an opinion. So you're wrong on both counts. Okay. Now we can continue. We've noted it. It's on the record. I hope so. Thousands of people will hear it. Good. <laughs> At least a thousand. Um, no, more than that. We keep our numbers to ourselves. 
Beth is Beth is encouraging me to, to boost my numbers. I want to ask you about about when you worked at MTV back in the day. You were you were cons- you were consulting for them. Yes. What are, you, are there things you because you were working for MTV back when MTV was a very very big deal. Uh, I was working for MTV on day one almost on day one. So you saw the, the beginning of this thing that was sort of the defining cultural and media company for for a decade or more. Now you're on the Viacom board. Are there lessons that you learned at MTV, or things you saw back then that are relevant now? So I didn't know it at the time because when you live through something, it's hard to figure out what's important. Yeah. But looking back on it now, and I've thought about this a lot the last couple of years as it relates to launching digital content companies, MTV was always about the brand. It wasn't about an individual video. It wasn't about an individual recording act. It was all about the brand. So I remember around the office, the phrase that was always repeated was, it's about the brand, and always went back to the brand. And and so that's the one lesson, my one takeaway from MTV, which is an important one, which you, if you forget about that, you have a harder time building a, a media company or a media property. Um, what do you think BuzzFeed's brand is, if we, if we zoom all the way to the present tense? Your chairman of BuzzFeed helped start it. I Thank you for that. I forgot. Well, BuzzFeed is successful, I guess, for a bunch of reasons. Every company that's successful is successful for a bunch of reasons. One of it is they've – Jonah has established a strong brand that – I don't know what the age is. I won't put an age on it, but from you know high school up. People go to it tons of times and and um, love the uh, vapid to the serious and everything in between. And it started out, I think, as a leisure brand for board demo board at board at work network. I think Joanna would call it right. Uh, leisure at college, maybe. Yeah. Like when you're not studying. Yeah. And obviously, they broadened that out an enormous amount over the last three four years, building a significant news brand, a serious news brand. So it's – today it's – I guess it's a combination of leisure and news. Curious. I, I wrote a piece – I co-wrote a piece earlier in the year, right, right during uh, – I guess right before Trump was inaugurated, right around the same time. Um, they published a dossier. It's the infamous dossier. Mm-hmm. And what I was curious about was sort of what the reaction was like among BuzzFeed's advertisers, investors, people who were backing the company. What did – what do people think about that idea? Because it puts you guys in, in put that company in the crosshairs. From what I can tell, and reported, uh, Ben Smith just basically just went ahead and published it. So I think Jonah knew he was going to do it eventually. Did they talk to you about that or that kind of idea in advance? Uh, they sometimes talked to me about some ideas in advance, but they didn't talk to me about that in advance. I, I saw it when you saw it. So when you saw it and you see that, that dossier and you got a sense of sort of what that means, and it's the beginning of the Trump administration, what's, what's your reaction? Uh, my reaction was I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about this a lot, obviously. So, yeah, that was that's what I told them when they asked me. But they asked they didn't ask me when I saw it. Yeah. They said, so what do you think? So I thought about it for a little bit and I said, I get it. I would have done the same thing. So you know a lot of people. A lot of them work with establishment media companies. I'm sure some of them have come to you and said, what are you guys doing? Some did and some said the opposite. Yeah. What, to the ones who said, what are you doing? What did, what did you say? Who, me? I'm chairman. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not my publication, after all. Call Peter Kafka at Recode. Yeah. He's a know-it-all. <laughs> Thank you. It's okay. But I just get you back. 
Um, but you know, you had you had grown up publications, right? The New York Times, CNN, saying this: you've crossed a line here. This is you know, we appreciate the the impulse here, but this is this is not what yeah, you should do if you're a you know, responsible organization. <clears throat> you know all the arguments. I won't go over them about. Ben did a bunch of TV interviews at the time and right. explained why he did it, and I think it was a cogent argument, and I get it, and I supported it then. I support it now. I can understand why some didn't agree with it. Let's say the purists in journalism, and there are a lot of them, and yeah. thank goodness, they didn't think it was the right thing to do, but an equal number disagreed and thought it was. So I'd say it was split 50-50 from the people who talked to me. And the thinking that you've been doing about it since then, it's not you going back and forth thinking about maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. It's just you just sort of rolling it around your head. You know, I think about a lot of stuff all the time and I go back and forth and back yeah. and forth and I think by myself when I'm sitting in my office and I'm comfortable with the decision. So sometimes we talk about business here. There's been two stories about BuzzFeed in the last couple of weeks. One one just came out and it's in Business Week. And so it looks like you well, it's obviously done in, in conjunction with BuzzFeed. So I'm assuming. I didn't see it. But you'll see it eventually. It says, okay. it says you guys are on track to do $350 million in revenue this year, um, looking for an IPO next year. Do you think this company really IPOs next year? I think it's a combination of the macro markets and then the digital markets and then the BuzzFeed market. So it's too early to predict what happens next year. When when you started this company with Jonah, did you think this is a company that I would like to run? I'd like to I'd like to see this go public at some point, or do you think eh, this is something we, you know you sold AOL to you sold HuffPo to AOL? Some you'd have a similar exit like that, or eventually someone else would take this thing off your hands. I guess it's ambitious and arrogant to start a company on day one and and yeah. even imagine that I'm going to go public one day. So no, I never thought of that. I don't. You know, most of the companies I've started, I've started because of a passion, uh, some kind of passion. And I've never, this is going to make me fa sound incredibly stupid, I've never sat down and worried about, I'm not smart enough to know where it's going to go. Most people maybe make believe they are, but I know I'm not. So you have to pivot. You have to take advantage of the environment. You have to see what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And then you make decisions on the fly. But you don't – I've never started a company and thought, oh, wow, this is going to make me a million dollars. Never in my life. You, you did you, – I think it existed – no, I, I know it existed. It existed while HuffPo existed, right? We started it while we had HuffPo, a skunk works for, right. Huff, for Huffington Post to try out different – Products and projects, and I think sometimes people, maybe even you, have described it to me as, "Well, we did this as a way to like keep Jonah engaged and occupied." And this no, would be something Joe, he could go no, do. He I, was the former CTO and also a co-founder of HuffPo with you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say to keep him occupied. He wanted to do it, yeah. and he's brilliant. And it seemed like if he had some good ideas that he could apply to Huffington Post, great. And why not? So what I was getting to in my mind, but I didn't say it out loud, is is what is – since you sold Huffington Post for a bunch of money to AOL, it's a big successful exit for you. How does that affect the way you look at the next company you're investing a lot of time and money in BuzzFeed in terms of how long you'd want to keep it to yourself, whether or not you'd consider selling it, what success looks like? If you've had a success like HuffPo, how does that go into what you think about the next big project? So let me talk generically sure. and that about BuzzFeed. Sure. Because – just I'm more comfortable doing that. So first of all, when you start a company and you have outside investors, VC investors, funds, 
funds want to get out after five, six, seven years. Yep. Ten years is a long time for a fund to stay in. They start having LP pressure. So companies we invest in, similarly to companies we start, you kind of think about a six, seven, eight-year exit. But you don't, I don't, ever at the beginning think, what's the exit going to be? If that, if I've answered your question, yeah. and then as you get closer, you take a look at your options, and then you make decisions based on what you think the employees would like, and what, and management, right. and the board, and like as I said before, the environment and um, the because economy. Specifically, sometimes what I think about you guys and BuzzFeed. One thing about BuzzFeed is. The fact that you and, and Jonah, right, he's CEO to his company, yep. have been very successful already changes the way they might look at w- what happens to the company ultimately. Okay. It's a good non-committal okay. Well, no, I don't no. know. What was the question? Yeah. Well, I did ask a question. He said, I don't want to talk about BuzzFeed. So. No, I didn't say I didn't want to talk about BuzzFeed. I said specifically I don't want to talk about BuzzFeed's Exit strategies. Yeah. They obviously, you know, you could count it on one hand, right? You can go public. Or, or you can sell the company. Or you can sell the company strategic. Or you can buy your current investors out and put new investors in and keep going. Or you can sell your company to a PE firm. Yeah. That's, I mean, I guess that's about it. Yeah. I guess the question is, I'll just rephrase it one more time. Do you think you have more options because you and Jonah have had success prior to this at Huffington Post? That had you not, or, or put it another way, had you not sold Huffington Post for a bunch of money to AOL, do you think you would have already exited? Yes and no to your two questions. That is a fair answer. <laughs> and now <laughs> that you're smiling at me, and I think you're going to stick around. We'll, we'll, we'll... No, no, I'm almost done. All right, so we, we will hear from a sponsor. <laughs> we'll be right back with Kenny Lair. Guys, and people who are not guys, I have great news. The first thing is that Father's Day is coming up. The second thing is that this podcast is sponsored by The Art of Shaving. These two things are connected. Let me tell you more. You know The Art of Shaving. These guys were founded in 1996. If you've been to a mall, if you've been to a street, you've seen their stores. You you get your dad a gift certificate so they can go get a cool shave on their birthday or Father's Day. They can also bring you cool stuff to your door. They have your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. They have stuff for you. They have award-winning products that are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. I've tried them. They feel good. The Artist Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products without ever having to worry that you'll run out. My listeners can get 15% off their first order and free shipping if you use the promo code MEDIA. Go to artofshaving.com and use my special promo code MEDIA. That's 15% off and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or go to one of the stores I told you about and they will help you. This show is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? If you're hiring, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job, and they do it better than anyone else. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. That sounds scary, but it's good. In fact, more than 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. You can juggle emails or calls to your office. You just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. 
Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the best candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, $0. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter, so you can post jobs for free. Should we talk more about Huffington Post? Sure, whatever you like. What do you think about, about that thing being owned by Verizon, which is now combining with Yahoo? What do you think the future holds for that company? Well, I still have great affection for the Huffington Post since you know Ariane and I started together. And it's clearly gone through a lot of changes over the years. We started it, in my mind, to have a competitor, the Drudge Report, which seriously affected the Bush-Kerry race. And at that time, Drudge controlled the internet and conservative radio controlled radio. Right. And my goal with the Huffington Post... Ariana might have had a slightly different one, was to create a digital content company that could help a Democrat get elected four years later. Right. And you were explicit about that. I was. Yeah. And, and we were lucky enough to do that. We also expanded beyond politics, obviously, pretty more quickly than I thought we would. Then when the company got bigger after we sold it and went to AOL, I think that it lost some of its currency. Not anybody's fault. It just got bigger and AOL was there. And I don't know the new editor, but I hear she's fantastic. She's I've never great. met her. That's what yeah, I hear. I hear like she's really smart. every single person who's met her said she's a superstar. She's got her work cut out for her because now she's with AOL and Yahoo and Verizon. Good luck. Do you think that, that Verizon can be a good steward of a publishing asset, fundamentally? If they choose to be. It's interesting, because there's a bunch of folks, I know one of them, um, who are talking about, we should build a, a Breitbart for the left in 2017. And then one of the things I always think is, well, that's kind of HuffPo, right? Do, mm-hmm. we, do we need a Breitbart for the left? Does the left need a Breitbart? So what's happened since the Huffington Post launched besides what I said before, well, the whole business model has changed to distributed content. Right. And Huffington Post is, by and large, an old business model. And I think that the left needs a digital content company that's distributed. So the answer is yes. See, what, what, and the Huffington Post right. is, so isn't not, that. So not just a big slash left-leaning publication, but one that understands Facebook and how to get stuff out on Twitter and how to figure out Snapchat. I wouldn't launch a a new content company now with the model of 2005 or 2010. You can't succeed. You have to use the new model, which we did with the Dodo. My daughter did, rather, with the Dodo, and which we did with Now This News. And we've invested in a bunch of other ones with the new model, and that's the only way to invest in digital content so today. So you think there is a model, you understand what it is, this is how you work, and the big broad idea is generally to push your stuff out to as many places as possible and figure out a business, a way to monetize when those things are viewed, engaged with, off of your site, off of your property. I mean, I th- that's slightly inarticulate, but Yeah, sure. well, that's me. So give me the articulate. No, version. you got there. But it's just, it's not that simple. <laughs> no, if it's not it that were, simple. If it were, you know, you and I could leave here and go start a new one right now. It's very difficult to do, and it's not just 
quote, pushing your stuff out, unquote. So in the magazine business, traditional magazine business, there's a way you treat your content and a way you don't treat your content. There's a there's an image that you put on the cover which will sell X, and there's a different image that for the same story that will sell Y, Right. correct? And so in digital content, there's a way to create a video with the same substance, same content that might be more viral and interesting on Facebook than not. Same with Snapchat, same with Instagram, same with Google. And so so it's not just pushing your stuff out. You have to figure out what piece of content you want to create and then spend a lot of time figuring out how that right. translates if it was just into hitting different the button and, then, and then sending feeds, it to eight different places. Everybody would be successful. Right. And, no yeah. one, and no one would want to see that stuff. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that aren't simple, right? So now this is one of the ones I think about. This is something that we talked about, I think, when, right when you were launching and, and – because I'm inarticulate, I think I was describing it. Well, this is a uh, digital CNN. But I think you guys had a, had a different conception of what it would be, too. I think more of a news organization than what it became, right? Can you talk about how, how you pivoted through various stages of that company's life? Yeah, so you're partly right and partly wrong, because I still think part of it is r- real news. Not I think it is. So I made a bunch of mistakes when we launched Now This News. For one... In hindsight, we were too early, and timing in business is, I don't know if it's 51 or 99%, but if you're too early, you run out of money. If you're too late, it costs too much money. You need to nail it if you're lucky enough to nail it. We thought that we saw what was going on with digital video, and we thought we saw it exactly right, and in fact, we were a year and a half too early. Luckily, we we had enough money in the bank and raise enough money and I think did a follow-up that we were able to stick with it. So that's first mistake. Second mistake, we had great people working for us, but I made a mistake in that I hired traditional yeah, media executives. CNN, I think. Well, we don't need to. But yeah, but no, but we like them. So. But yeah, but your point is you went and hired people from traditional media organizations and then sort of created a new newsroom, essentially. Bad mistake. It's really hard for people to learn something new when they're not 15. So we finally got it right. We hired the right people who were all in their 20s who didn't grow up at ABC or NBC or CBS or CNN or any of those places. And then the timing caught up with us because it hit Facebook perfectly, etc. So it's doing terrifically well now. We we went from one Facebook feed to probably I don't know how many we have now. I mean I'm not involved day to day anymore. Yeah. Probably eight or nine or ten. But our political vertical is doing exceedingly well. And so we still do a lot of very hardcore news all the time. But the model did change, right? You had you had people in a studio giving sort of a newscast. Oh no, we did that for about a week and a half. Okay, that's the part uh, I saw. That, that worked literally for a week and a half. That was my mistake, but. I covered that mistake immediately. <laughs> how how difficult is it for you to see your own mistakes when it's your own money and it's a project like this that that you started as opposed to just investing in something and someone else is running it? Really easy. Yeah. I, I question myself too many times during the day. Yeah. And you don't distinguish between something that you're deeply involved in versus something where you just have a sort of passing interest in it? No, no, I do. Obviously, when we make investments – you're not the CEO, you don't run it, and you have to know your place. 
but you can see it equally well. It's not that you're blinded by the fact oh, that you're close I, to I, something. I, no, I'm not blinded because I'm close to it. I see it better if I'm close to it. And sometimes when you invest and you're not close to it, you can't see it. We've you been, miss it. We've been talking about this, but I should be more explicit. In addition to the other things we've been talking about you doing, you also invest through a venture capital organization. It's your organization. Well, I'm partners uh, Lyra Hippo. Yep. I'm partners with Eric Hippo and my son Benjamin right. and Taylor Green, four of us. Um, you raised a couple hundred million bucks, more than that at this point? No, more than that. Yeah. Seed stage investing? Seed, and we just did one to follow up on A rounds. So I mostly talk to you if you're doing something in media, but you're not just strictly media for this stuff. No, no, not at all. Media is maybe 20%. And mostly New York? Or have you expanded beyond that too? I'd say 85% New York. I'm making that up, but I, we're the most active VC in New York State. Yeah, basically, if there's a deal that's happening in New York, you're probably either in it or you looked at it. Well, we're not in it, but hopefully we've looked at it or else we say, hey, why didn't we look at that? Yeah. yeah. I used to spend time when I talked to VCs saying, are we in a bubble? Are we not in a bubble? I stopped asking them because we got the same answer for years. They said, well, everyone else's investments are bubbles, <laughs> not mine. Do you spend time thinking about where we are in the market? Not a lot. Eric spends more time thinking about it than I do. I think the important thing is to not be in a hurry if you don't see what you like. And how much of this is you looking at something saying, I, my gut says, yeah, let's do it, versus using your advisors, asking folks who, who have domain knowledge about something? No, we always ask. Yeah. Always. So you've never just looked at someone and said, yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah, work. I have. Yeah. <laughs> how did those work out? Better or worse? They than, worked than out okay. Else? There's a lot of stuff that comes across that you have to get expert advice on because, I mean, I'm an expert in nothing, but there's a lot of stuff that you just have to ask questions about and do a lot of due diligence and a lot of vetting. You have to vet the individual who brings it to you. You have to vet the idea. You have to look at what's going on in the industry and competitive issues. But I've never seen a company at the seed stage, or almost never, I have seen a few, that said, I'm going to do X and did X. That part of this is a pivot. And so a founder, if he or she doesn't have the capacity to pivot, they won't succeed. And that's really important, and you don't know that when you invest initially. You meet enough people that you get kind of good at it, but if they can't make that pivot, they're not going to win. I know you're headed in this direction. I also know you're going to turn 90 degrees at some point, and if you don't, it's not going to succeed. And by the way, those financials you showed me a year ago, they're meaningless. So when you take a look at financials at a, at a seed round – I mean, they should make common sense and they have to add up and you have to use your judgment and apply your knowledge to it. But to think that those are really the financials of the company, right. never. Do you have an acid test for being able to assess an entrepreneur and saying to him or her, yeah, I think that you're going to have this flexibility or no, I can tell you don't? I wish I did. No. Save you some money. A bad handshake is, a, is not a good sign. My dad taught me that. That still works? That still works. Yeah, for me, it does. That's not really a good test, but it still works. Do you remember giving advice to Henry Blodgett, by the way, back when he was running uh, what was then Silicon Alley Insider and then Business Insider? Because I yeah. remember him being really deeply influenced by, by two people, you and Nick Denton. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about Nick. No, Henry and I talked constantly, not daily, but weekly and yeah. met all the time. Had you known him prior to, to him? I did because he was a um, – well, he was an Wall analyst Street, yeah. with what firm? Merrill? A bunch. Well, Oppenheimer so, and then, yeah, I can't remember. What, I think uh, he ended up at Merrill, yeah. So, no, I knew him when I was consulting or with AOL, and he covered AOL, so I got to know him then. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you remember giving one particular advice that sort of helped him succeed at Business Insider? No. Uh, get, let Peter Kafka go. <laughs> I love Henry. He's done a great job. And I hear that I, I was – Axel Springer bought it. I, I, was, I joined the board for a year and then I realized, well, this is kind of silly. There's – Axel Springer owns it. Why is there a board? So I left. Oh, there was a Business Insider board post-acquisition? <laughs> yeah. I yeah, mean, you know, I know. Kind of like why am I doing this? I, love, I think that's weird. I love Axel Springer and Henry, but it didn't make sense. So I left. But – no, they're doing very well, and I know no big advice. I just would – Henry and I would really do deep dives all the time. Yeah, all I mean, the time. And, the, and the reason – I mean, I think in addition to you giving him time, right, the reason he spent a lot of time thinking about the way that, that you viewed the world and the way that Nick viewed the world, those were the two successful digital publishing models at the time, right, Gawker and, and HuffPo. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, I got to know Henry, so we were friends. We trusted each other. Yeah. Yeah. Since we still have trust here, we're going to take one more quick ad break so we can hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Here's my friend Lauren Good from The Verge. Hi, this is Lauren Good of The Verge. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of yoga, and I'm just starting to get into meditation apps like Headspace, which I know are all the rage right now. I'm not quite sure I'm good at either of those things, but hey, I enjoy them and I enjoy reading about them. And the way that we consume culture is changing. So the way fandom works is changing for people too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast called Fan Club, which is about that change and why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we're going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. This week, Ross talks to his fellow sneakerheads Ron Ferris of Nike and Ryan Babesian about their shared obsessions with kicks. Listen now by subscribing to Fan Club on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back here with Ken Lair, who is still in the studio, so I'm going to take advantage of it all I can. You know, I was trying to get you on this podcast. You said, I don't want to talk. What would we talk about? And I said, here's one of the things I want to talk about. I want to get your, what does the world look like what do you think the world looks like to a big media company, to an NBC, to a Discovery, to a Viacom? I'm bringing those up specifically because you're associated with all three of those companies right yeah. now. But you can make up a different name. You can put in Disney there if you want. So the those worlds are changing a lot yeah. and fast, faster than I thought they would. The sand is shifting. Faster than you thought you, they would even though you're basically your, – your business model is based on the sand shifting or, or you're a thesis, right? as a digital investor and entrepreneur? Well, so look, you, the two of us can agree that the world 10 years from now, that my grandchildren are not going to consume media the way my kids did. Agreed. And then so the question is, okay, how fast is that going to change? Uh, I thought maybe seven, eight years a while ago. I think I'm kind of cutting that in half in my mind now. The cable cutters are real right. and increasing. And the cord nevers. The, what do they call it? Well, both, right? They're either cutters or nevers, right? Yeah, right. Nevers a lot, right? Yeah. Facebook has effectively become as powerful of as all the cable companies were all together in the 1980s and 1990s operators. So video coming to the phone. So all these pendulums have have swung more quickly than I thought they were going to swing. And that is not 
good news for the traditional cable networks and traditional media companies, and they've got to figure it out. And, a, and it's not dissimilar to what we saw when we launched the Huffington Post for print. And now you're seeing it for video. Right. And this is – in this thesis, right, this is something that, that people have been preaching for a long time. And for years, it, it, it seemed like it was, like you said, years off. It's and not years it, off anymore. And then it showed up really quickly. So I'm sure you're not going to tell me what Viacom is going to do or Discovery. Probably don't know about NBC. Let's let's use generically Fox. Let's just use them as a generic, big, multinational media company. So mm-hmm. th- there's lots of smart people who work at these companies. What does someone like a Fox do? Because they can see this as well as you can. What moves do they have? So somebody smart said to me, "It's it's flying a plane and fixing it while you're flying it. It's much easier to land the plane and bring it into the hangar and yeah. fix what's wrong. You can't do that. You have to fly it and fix it at the same time." So you have to, A, say, okay, how fast is the sand going to shift and my business going to change? B, how fast and how effectively can I launch, if you will, quote, unquote, over the top, right? And C, how fast and how much revenue can I build around digital? Because distribution first, content second, and advertising third. That's always the way it works. And there's a big lag time. Still, by the way. You think Still. Oh, sure. And there's a big lag time between building a content company and then having advertising follow it. You know, you need to raise enough money for it to catch up. Yep. So if I'm Fox or one of these other make-believe companies that we won't have a name for, I have to do all three. And it's, I have to do all three things, and it's, and it's really hard. I mean, the thing that all those companies have in common, though, right, is they have a business. They have a giant business today. They're usually very profitable. They certainly have a ton of revenue, uh, and that that revenue is not going to fall off a cliff in the next couple years. So maybe we should look at this and say, how old is the CEO? No joke. Yeah. Like, if the CEO of X media company is sixty-eight or seventy, which most of them are, he or she's going to say, next someone else's next problem. CEO is going to figure that this. Yeah. Right? I'm serious about yeah, this. Yeah. But if the CEO is 55 or 45, they've got to fix it. So you might be able to take a look at media companies and see how old is the CEO, and that might help you figure out how fast they're going to have to It's pivot. an interesting way of looking at it, right? Because if, if we're talking about Fox specifically, you have Rupert, not young, but basically he's started to hand the company over to his two sons who are in the mid-40s, and presumably it's going to be their company and their problem. I think most of the companies you're looking at, these are these are older CEOs. Most of them, not all yeah. of them. So if I'm Fox, I'm still making a ton of money with my with news, but I'm worried about it because of what Ailes and O'Reilly and yep. others did to hurt it. Number one, I've got a massive culture problem. Number two, my average viewer, I'm making this up, is 71. They're probably going to be dead sooner than later. Young people aren't coming on because they're cord cutters or, as you said, never. That's a problem. And I don't have a real digital presence at all. I'd be very worried long term about the Fox network. So you buy your way out of that problem? Can you build an asset? Is it plausible for a company like that to build an asset or do they go have to go buy a BuzzFeed or a Vice or a Vox Media? So if you – by Vox, you have a 80% chance you're going to wreck it. Uh-huh. 
right? That's a track record, right? Yeah, that's a track record. And building it is very difficult, too, because you don't have the DNA to do it. So I guess you have to do both and and push forward as hard as you can push and maybe do it off balance sheet so it doesn't hit your P&L for a while and build the brand and then bring it back in after you build the brand and you have revenue against it. Yeah, to me, the, that's the, what I would do. The short version of this is your time Warner and you sell, right? You find... You find someone who has even more money, and you say, oh, "We're, we're going to get out of this business. Hand it over to you guys. Good luck." You don't say it. You don't say that last part out loud. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, that makes it somebody else's problem. Yeah. And are you? A, do you? Can you make any argument for marrying distribution and content together, like AT and T and Time Warner are doing, like Verizon is doing with AOL and Yahoo? Does that make sense in this world? Makes a ton of sense. Oh, you, you're, you're okay. I thought you were going to. No, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, some are going to succeed. Some are going to fail. Is is the Verizon, is the AT and T acquisition of Time Warner going to succeed? I think yes. Is the Verizon acquisition of Yahoo and AOL going to work? Maybe not, because neither AOL or Yahoo are strong brands today. And I guess I read they're changing their name to Oath. Yeah. Spectacular name! I wish I had thought of that for I one of my I think they're saying companies. they're going to keep keep the core names, but they'll they'll put it under this umbrella. But yeah. I see, I see. But no, it's not a great name. Well, name an internet company that had a very weak brand over time and was able to bring it back from near death. No, there are zero you successful can't. consumer internet companies who've lost. Uh, the only exception, and it's not isn't there's an asterisk by it is Priceline. Okay, so literally that, just one. Okay, so I didn't. Know, I used to say there was none. So now I've learned. But that's a lesson. That now you know. Could they do it? Sure. But are the odds against them? Yes. Okay, I think you and I are in agreement. Yeah. As, as Limp Biscuit would say. Yeah. On AT and T Time Warner, I think they can they'll not fig- screw it up. They, they they'll figure it out. It seems to me like they don't actually want to. Like it's not a matter of, of Randall Stevenson wants to get into movies. No, and by the way, Time Warner assets. Versus AOL and Yahoo assets? I mean, please. Well, they also, it's a different price tag too, right? Well, yeah, but Verizon may have been better off buying Time Warner. Yeah. Are you, are you getting counseled? When Viacom brings you onto the board, what do they, what do they want to hear from you? Do they, do I don't they think want I, this kind of advice? Which kind of advice? The kind you're offering to free for, to our well, I don't, I don't think I've offered any advice so far. Sure, I speak up at the board meetings. I listen and then I give my point of view. I hopefully can help them with digital a little bit. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, being a board member is you, you meet once every three months. and so you nod your head? No, you listen and you yeah. speak up, but you're not intimately involved in the day-to-day operations of the company. So maybe help on digital, maybe help on cable networks because I, I worked with them for a long time. Yep. Let's bring it back to news one last time before we go. Yeah. You don't dislike journalists. You have great respect for them. Thank you. Took um, you a half hour to apologize, but I think I'll take longer it. longer than that. Do you think that fake news is as big a problem as um, we've been hearing about for the last few months? And if so, is there anything we can do about it? So clearly fake news is a problem that I believe has been exacerbated greatly by Trump's campaign and Trump's presidency. And he's created, 
he's built on something that existed but wasn't a major problem, and he's built it into a much bigger problem. Him, Be, him and his campaign specifically. Him and his campaign. By, by talking about it all the time, he's created an enormous amount of fake news, in my by, view. By simply using the word fake news as opposed yes. to creating fake news, yeah. Both. So without a Trump presidency, I would be less worried about it. And I, and I used the word pendulum before. I think we'd pendulum out of it. I think Facebook was caught off guard and they take it seriously now, as do some others. But we've got to get out of this political cycle, which may be another three years, probably will be another three years, in order for things to hopefully get back to some normalcy. And, but you'd think this is something that Facebook is tackling, wants to tackle, and should tackle. I think they. Ha- I don't think they have a choice. I think they have to tackle it. And and this is because, like you said earlier, they are. We won't play the tape back. Basically, you said, look, these guys are as important or more important than all the cable operators were back in the day. And I think that they're ethical, good human beings. On top of it, and want to do the right thing. We'll leave it at do the right thing. How about that? Deal. Is that a good up note? Deal. Thanks, Mister. Thank Lair. you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, this is fun. If you like fun conversations, we got more for you. We just had our big code conference last week. It is not free, but you can hear it all for free. You can hear me talking to Reed Hastings and Jeff Bucus and Sherry Redstone. I didn't talk to Bill Simmons or Hillary Clinton or Walt Mossberg, but but we talked to them as well. Those are all for free, available over on Recode Replay. You guys know where to find us, over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play. All we ask is that you tell a friend about us as well. So thanks. Thanks again to our sponsors, Mac Weldon, The Art of Shaving, ZipRecruiter, and Viacom. We were just talking about them. And thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads. Thanks again to my producers, Beth O'Connell, Eric Johnson, Chris Basil. And thanks again to Ken Lair for showing up and sitting through this. This is Rico Media. I'm back next week with another great guest. I'll see you then.